You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinson's.org.uk. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Movers and Shakers. I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones and this time we're not in the pub and we're only half the team we usually are. So who have we got? Gillian Lacey-Sonomar. And Paul Mayhew-Archer. Yes, I'm afraid we couldn't bring Jeremy Paxman, Mark Mardell or Judge Nick Mostyn along. We couldn't afford them, but we three <laughs> are going to do our best. Uh, Gillian, describe where we are and what this event is all about. This is a phenomenal event. We're in Barcelona and it's the World Parkinson's Congress, which is 4,000 people. And it brings together both those who have Parkinson's, like us, and all the clinicians, all the researchers, and it's the only conference that does that. You know, you should see the look in their eyes when they're actually talking to someone with Parkinson's. You can see a little glimmer go, ah, this is what it's all about. This is what I'm working on. It is incredible. All the world's top experts, coupled with all the world's top parkies, of course, including us. I met someone on the Cure Parkinson stand the other night, a young medical researcher, shining eyes. He said he'd been to lots of medical conferences, but not one like this, because there were so many of the patients here and they often knew more than anybody else. Also, I should say, we normally meet in a tiny pub around a tiny table in a tiny alcove, and now we're in what seems to me an absolute enormous, cavernous... It could hold an aircraft, this place, it's not just us. Absolutely amazing. And could I also say, we have had messages from the three that are not here. Mark Mardell said he was very sorry he couldn't be here. Nick Mossin said he was going to miss it awfully. And Jeremy Paxman said, what a bloody ghastly place, I'm glad I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) Taking Jeremy's name in vain again. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is an extraordinary event. I have to say, I was last in this very hall, this giant cavernous exhibition hall filled with stands about Parkinson's and technology about Parkinson's and organisations talking about Parkinson's for a very different event. I was here for Mobile World Congress for a, a press conference with Samsung where there was a virtual reality headset under every seat and Mark Zuckerberg was speaking on the stage about virtual reality. And I have to tell you, it was a lot less interesting than this. It, it's been fascinating, hasn't it, Jimmy? It's really exciting. I mean, the problem is there's so much going on simultaneously that you don't quite know where to head. And that some of the stuff that's for the scientists is actually pretty damn difficult to understand if you're a layperson. But, I mean, fair enough, because I suppose they, you know, it's more efficient for them to talk to each other in a language that they all understand. But I wish I understood some of the scientific lingo and some of the lectures. Have you been to those, any of, either of you? I have been to one. I did look down the list this morning and was sort of marvelled at the technical language about alpha synuclein and, and stuff like that. I did like the look of one about the role of apathy and fatigue as symptoms. I've been on that. I've, I've been to a, a round-table discussion about apathy and fatigue and tiredness, uh, which turned out to be a square table. <laughs> <laughs> I, des- I decided I just couldn't be bothered, and, frankly. And, and, and when we introduced ourselves, there was a woman on the group who said, could I record the session? And she was allowed to record it, and I wondered why she wanted to record it. And then about five minutes in, she started nodding off. <laughs> and I realised why it was important to record it. And at the end, we came to a conclusion that there wasn't really much that could be done about apathy. <laughs> 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 it is the perfect sort of... 
perfect, perfect. Well, here's the format that we've decided on. We've all picked one amazing person to interview to give us a flavour of the event, all except Gillian, who's picked two. So, Gillian, <laughs> give us your first choice. Well, I have a special dispensation because they're so interesting, both of them. So the first one is this chap called Neil Russell, and uh, whereas we all came by plane, he chose a rather different route. So, Neil, tell us what you've done to get here. I've run from uh, West London down to Portsmouth, from Portsmouth across on the ferry to Cannes in northern France. I've run all through France into the Pyrenees, up and over the Pyrenees, down onto the Spanish coast and into Barcelona for the World Parkinson's Congress. That makes me feel more than a little inadequate, I must say. Well, I am a little bonkers, which sort of helps to sort of undertake this sort of challenge. But, I mean, I trained for over a year to do it, so it's not something I just sort of got up one morning and said, oh, I'm going to nip over to Barcelona. And did you raise funds along the way? Yeah, it's still ongoing, and uh, at the moment I think I'm on about, I think about £10,000 wow. raised. Wow. Congratulations, that is an immense achievement. Thank you. So, an amazing guy, and we came across him in the hall yesterday, didn't we? I'd, I'd written about him last week, and I was wandering the hall, taking pictures, and there was a man with a lovely golden retriever sitting very quietly munching a sandwich with the, the dog looking ho- hopefully up, up at him and I said was it alright if I took his picture and he said fine and I thought that there's a, a quiet little fellow and walked on it was only when his partner Nikki came up and introduced her, herself that I realised who he was and what he'd achieved and what they'd achieved together she Amazing. was interesting too wasn't she was, she? yeah she was really key to the whole thing as well you know she drove with him she helped him on the training etc and I said to her are you his carer and she said I hate the term carer she said, I think of myself more as his PA. And I said, why PA? And she said, because I'm his parking assistant, which I rather liked, I must say. That is a great term. She thought that the, the, the image of carers was with somebody rather helpless, you know, basically wiping their bottom, didn't but, she? But it's rather disappointing. He didn't run all the way, did he? I mean, he didn't run across the channel. You're, you are now nitpicking, typically. He, <laughs> he, he, Neil Russell... We can officially reveal does not walk on water. There is the challenge. It felt like walking on water to me because what I then found out yesterday was that he'd been for a run that morning. You know, no, you, you're you, you, I'm serious. He'd God. been for another run that morning. You've got here now, Neil. Chill out. He's an incredible man. Yeah, he, he really is. He's so self-effacing. Yeah. You know, there was, he wasn't pushing his point of view at all. He was simply there. And raising a lot of money. I mean, there was another group that biked here. They made me feel tired too. The idea of cycling all the way from Brighton, I think it was, to Barcelona. I, I do a, a quick mile to the canal in the morning and then I have to have a lie down. One of, one of those who did that was uh, Gary Shaughnessy, who's the chair of trustees of Parkinson's UK. And he is amazing because he also holds, the, I think, the Guinness Book of Records for the 24-hour three-legged run. <laughs> really? Yes, absolutely amazing chat. So we're meeting lots of amazing people here. I got here absolutely shattered after an early start and, uh, and a bit hungry on, on Tuesday morning. About lunchtime, it was really, really hot. I dropped straight into the first session I could find 
uh, expecting, frankly, to have a bit of a snooze. But it was a, a gripping talk about nutrition and its role in Parkinson's by a, a dietitian, an Irish dietitian called Rochelle Flanagan, who herself was diagnosed with PD a few years back. She talked a lot about the Mediterranean diet, so I grabbed her afterwards and asked her to tell me more. So everyone always asks, you know, what, what diet do I, you know, can I eat to slow progression of Parkinson's? So the Mediterranean diet is certainly showing signals of potential to slow progression and in particular a thing called the mind diet which tends to be high in berries you know so blackberries blueberries strawberries high in sort of green leafy vegetables things like your broccoli kale cabbage etc and also high in olive oil and also uh, legumes as well so you know pulses chickpeas kidney beans lentils green lentils things like that nuts are important as well in the diet white fish oily fish in the Mediterranean diet and getting plenty of fruit and vegetables very good for the, the microbiome as well so uh, making sure that we have good bacteria in our bowel because that is associated less healthy bacteria in the bowel is associated with Parkinson's as well It sounds like just the bog standard advice for, for anybody is, is, is there anything different about a Parkinson's diet from a good healthy normal diet? It's quite subtle the difference in terms of the mind diet in terms of those particular constituents so the thing is that we don't eat nutrients we eat foods we eat a plate of food. So it's the combination of foods that actually has packs the power. So in the you know, the berries, it's the colours actually of those fruits that give you these anti-inflammatory. So a lot of people don't actually eat berries. You know, they're eating sort of bananas and apples and stuff, and that's fine. But it's actually having specifically making sure you get berries in you know your diet. Again, in terms of green leafy veg, you'd be amazed the amount of people who only eat carrots for their dinner or cauliflower. You know, they don't get the greens and again it's the colour of these foods actually have these anti-inflammatories so it might sound you know a bit sort of bog standard and people want this you know ketogenic diet or something but actually that's much more difficult to stick to you know it's, it's really positive this mind diet is really showing benefits from slowing progression it's something that people can actually eat and enjoy coming back to your point you're starving you're in the right place in Spain for the Mediterranean diet and the food here has been fabulous in terms of you know all of the constituents that are important to slow progression a few specifics. Dairy. Now, dairy seems to be controversial. Is it good or is it bad? Well, I, you know, I, I hate describing foods as good or bad. Uh, so is there healthy or less healthy? And, and as I sort of described today, there is a, a body of research. It's quite conflicting, but when you put it all together, it's definitely showing an association between dairy and the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. We don't know why that is, whether it's to do with uh, pesticides, whether it's to do with uric acid, which has been associated with, uh, with Parkinson's, whether it's to do with the microbiome. There's also a theory around galactose, a type of sugar that might be in dairy food. We just don't know. So and the thing about dairy foods that are very important in terms of your, your bone health and also there's research to show that's important in your cognitive health. So generally, you know, the advice would be, I would say, looking at the, the combined level of evidence is to keep to sort of more, no more than 200 grams of dairy in the day. And the research would show that getting in around the 200 grams has the benefit to the cognition, but keeping at the 200 grams reduces the risk of developing Parkinson's. So that 200 grams seem to be kind of the safe zone to keep in. Let's get personal here. I love cheese. Am I all right to still love cheese? Okay, so in terms of the cheese, certainly in the mind diet, one of the core elements that they actually reduced was cheese in the diet, oh particularly in relation to saturated fat uh, that's content in the cheese. So in general, in terms of cheese, it'd be like a matchbox size of cheese, 30 grams. Like that's, you should stick to just one of those a day. So that's pretty tiny. And unfortunately, with the block of cheese, once you start, <laughs> you can keep going on it. So it's about trying to swap that out, you know, for other healthier fats. So modern saturated fats like olives and, and almonds, for example, are great alternative. So replacing the saturated fat with the monounsaturated fat 
is a much healthier for Parkinson's as well as protecting your heart and against diabetes, which are all comorbidities of Parkinson's as well. And what about wine? I'm allowed a glass or two or three or four, aren't I? Yes, you're definitely allowed one glass. <laughs> I like how you slipped in three or four. So generally speaking, the mind diet would say, or the Mediterranean diet, so one glass. So generally anywhere from 125 mils, 200 mils max. Generally the red wine, because it has the constituents in it are beneficial for health. In terms of I presented today, if you look at grape juice, is it the same? But actually it seems that the, the wine making process actually creates more benefits in, in the wine. So the wine itself is, is, is better than the grape juice. But if, if you find that wine obviously can interfere with your levodopa, for example, can make you dehydrated, which can worsen your symptoms. So alcohol generally tends to dehydrate you if you have too much, and dehydration definitely worsens Parkinson's symptoms, cognitive as well as fun- you know, motor. Oh my God. You, you've, you've been depressed by I, Rochelle Flanagan, well, why? If I'm not allowed to eat cheese, and I've got to limit myself to 200 grams of milk, which presumably could be 200 grams of milk chocolate, but apart from that, I mean, I'm going to need several glasses of wine to get through the day, I think. Oh dear, oh dear. I'm a vegetarian. You're a vegetarian and, and you've got to cut your da- dairy. But there is a solution, isn't there? Because we can have different sorts of milk, coconut milk or, or other sort of milk. And, and I think they now make cheese out of it. So I'm going to try that. I'm going to try Nuts it. and olives as well. Yeah, nuts and olives. They're mm. all right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I found it mostly encouraging because a Mediterranean diet is, you know, what I kind of aspire to anyway. And I obeyed her injunction about one glass of wine on the first night. I may have broken that injunction on subsequent <laughs> nights. What about you, Gillian? I don't know, don't get me started on this one. My diet is such a complete and utter nightmare, not because of the things I eat, but because of the bloody timing of it. Yes, the timing, because it's got to be half an hour or an hour before your meal. Yeah, I I cut out of the interview. We had a discussion about the timing, and and what I thought was interesting, because she said, what I do is have a big fry-up on a Sunday, and I know it's not good for me, too close to my meds. She said, don't wait for your meds until after the meal have them half an hour beforehand and if you have them half an hour beforehand that won't be too bad well but i have them i have them an hour beforehand then an hour after and i've got 15 minutes in the middle to eat which is just so boring so i have to eat everything in 15 minutes so if you go out for dinner with me my whole meal, all three courses. I wondered why you just sort of gobbled things <laughs> down in a very rude fashion. Yes, that's it, that's it, exactly. Parkinson's and diet, God, don't get me started. I mean, the other point to make is that neurologists go on and on about drugs and various things. The two big things that we know we can do something about are diet and exercise, aren't they? Yeah, and the exercise, I'm exercising loads now, ever since the podcast, actually. Interesting, it's changed my whole lifestyle, this podcast, in all sorts of ways. It was, I think, was it Professor Chowdhury who said, this is not optional, blah, blah, blah. And he said it with such an earnest demeanour, I thought, oh my God, he really means it. And since then I've been either ping-ponging or swimming or something, everything. Didn't you cycle back to your hotel the other night? Well, I did, but it was on an e-bike. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. But but also, Gillian, didn't you have trouble swimming once with the DBS? Oh yeah, 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 I was drowned when the DBS was first put in because they forgot to tell me. You have to switch it off if you actually want to swim. I've been eating, eating perfectly, cheese, wine. Oh, God, no, I haven't been eating perfectly. Uh, and I've hardly done any exercise this week. But generally, I am trying to obey those things. And I have done something completely new. Just in the last couple of hours, I met somebody I'd never met before, a friend of a friend. And within an hour, half an hour, she'd taken me dancing. Can you believe that? There, there was a dance session upstairs which was absolutely brilliant with a a Mark Morris dance group from the United States and they had the whole room sitting in chairs 
doing these brilliant dances. My wife, who's a mad about ballet, does two ballet classes a week, has been going on at me about this for ages. And finally, I've done it. I've just rung her, and she said, yes, at last, you listen to somebody else, not me. Mark Morris was the first one to do the dance with Parkinson's, the ballet. I do yeah. it with English National Ballet, but Mark Morris, I think, pioneered it. You know? Well, his, his troupe is upstairs, and they'll be doing another session oh, later. Oh, fantastic. I'm going. I'm yeah, going. well... So we... when's your next performance, Rory? Uh, <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. I was good, but not that good. Actually, when I, I, I was diagnosed, the year after I was diagnosed, we went to see my original neurologist, and uh, he said, any developments in this year? And Julie, my wife, said, yes, uh, Paul started doing ballet with the English National Ballet. And he said, oh, that's an interesting career choice. Because <laughs> he thought that was genuinely... You'd, be, you'd, been, you'd been hired, yeah. We're all getting new experiences. Now, Gillian, you've got our big, serious interview because that's who we give the big, serious interview to. Absolutely. Well, we all wanted to get to the bottom of the sort of how we can bring an end to Parkinson's. So we thought, right person to talk to must be the author of a book called Ending Parkinson's, who is a very, very tall guy, Ray Dorsey. How, foot, how tall is he? Seven foot or something? Six foot seven, I'd say. Six foot seven, all right. And with all that information piled into six foot seven, I asked him, how are we doing? And I put it to him, well, it's not that well, really, is it? No, we're not. And we should take some blame for that, quite frankly. Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing brain disease. The number of people with the disease has more than doubled in the last 25 years. And if we don't do anything differently, it's going to double again. And no one's really quite paying enough attention to it. The fact that it's growing so rapidly should be a call to action and maybe should call us to think that we should be doing things a little bit differently than we are currently. I reckon if it were contagious, it would have been solved long ago, like COVID. I think if it were contagious, we would be uh, addressing it a lot more effectively than we are right now. So what's the solution then? I think Parkinson's its roots are in the environment. When Dr. Parkinson described it in London in 1817, he did so among a London fog. Air pollution in London in 1800 is equivalent to what it is in Delhi, India today. In other words, it was extremely polluted. And there are other environmental risk factors besides air pollution, including pesticides and a common dry cleaning chemical called trichloroethylene or TCE. And these environmental factors are all addressable. We can make do without these pesticides and make do without the century-old chemical and prevent future generations from ever getting Parkinson's in the first place. But before that, what can we do? You know, once you've lost 60% of your nerve cells, it's really, really hard to make them grow back. So there's some things you can do. Exercise can protect your remaining nerve cells. If I'm right that air pollution, pesticides, and dry cleaning chemicals are causing it, you should be avoiding those things like the plague if you have the disease, right? So buy organic produce, wash all your fruits and vegetables with soap and water, avoid air pollution, avoid subways if you can do so, avoid dry cleaning your clothes unless you get a green dry cleaner, put a water filter on your water. So there are lots of things that people with the disease can do right now to pr- reduce their exposure to these toxicants, which are likely driving Parkinson's in the first place. But to put it crudely, we're screwed, aren't we? No, I, I don't think you're screwed. Listen, Parkinson's disease is treatable. I mean, there are some really, really bad diseases that aren't very treatable. You know, I spend a lot of my time caring for people with Huntington's disease, and that's, you know, we have far, far fewer treatment options for Huntington's disease than we do Parkinson's disease, and people can live long, productive lives. You know, Michael J. Fox in Canada, right, has lived 30 years with Parkinson's disease, been in two TV shows and written three books and started a foundation that's raised $1.5 billion. There's a lot lot you can do with uh, Parkinson's disease. But we need to realize if we want to end this disease, the key to ending it isn't some fancy new pill. The key to ending this disease is to prevent it. So you talk about pollution at the root cause of it. 
But once you've got it, I mean, we're hearing about so many drugs like Xenotide. Do you think those can be effective in providing an answer? I hope so. You know, the last 20 years, we've had no major therapeutic breakthroughs for Parkinson's disease. You think about the two most effective treatments for Parkinson's disease beyond exercise are levodopa and deep brain stimulation, and those are from last century. I think we, as researchers, you need to take a little bit of blame here. Why haven't we come up with this therapeutic breakthrough in the last 25 years, last 20 years? And that's on us. And people like you and people with Parkinson's community should be holding us accountable and asking harder questions about why we're not making enough therapeutic progress. Okay, so what the hell do we do to hold you accountable? In the end, you're the funders of uh, Parkinson's research. You either fund it directly or indirectly uh, through taxes or philanthropy. And when you give money to foundations or to researchers, you should see what they're doing with it. And if the number of people with Parkinson's is increasing so rapidly, you should say, why? And why aren't we doing anything to prevent people from getting this disease? Just because you have Parkinson's disease doesn't mean that your sister, your daughter, your brother, your friend is immune from getting the disease either. And we need to be a lot more critical of researchers and the research community and making sure that we deliver on promises that, that are made. So that was Ray Dorsey. I've got to say I was a bit sceptical about, about some of that. I, I've been coming here each day from my hotel in the centre of town on the subway. Apparently I shouldn't have been doing that because, you know, you'll get noxious fumes or something. It was you've all got about to stop, stop eating weed killer as well. You've got to stop eating weed killer. I mean, I wonder whether that is the scientific consensus. And of course, it's not much use to us who've already got it, is it? No, I mean his claim that we should stop dry cleaning clothes and stuff. What's that going to do? Not a lot, is it? No, no. And he was a bit down on. I mean, we're we're all impatient about these new drugs, but there are new drugs that do look promising that are quite far down the line. I'm, I'm hearing sort of rumours of a, a, a big breakthrough coming on that front. I, I suppose that the worry for me is that it's been 200 years and we still don't know what causes it. We sort of, does it start in the gut? Does it start in the brain? We, there's so much we still don't know. And there's still so much that is misunderstood about it because Cure Parkinson's, I know, has just done this survey. And the only symptoms that people seem to, to recognise, that the general public seem to recognise, was the tremor. And I don't have a tremor, so and and that loss of balance. There are f- over 40 symptoms that people simply don't recognise as. But being be, be fair. Before you had Parkinson's, did you know that? No, I'm I'm saying that none of us knew about it. But the trouble is, if you if you think that it just causes the shake, you're not going to recognise other signs. And I've, I, this week, I've just been meeting so many people, and whenever I meet them, I, I, I ask them how they knew first discovered they got Parkinson's, and they said, well, it turned out to be a frozen shoulder, or my arm wasn't swinging, or my writing was tiny, or my, my voice had got weakened. Not that I had a, a tremor. So we've got to sort of educate people to know about it. And bringing it back to Ray Dorsey, I met him in Oxford, and he'd just been for a walk around the city, and he said there's a lot more Parkinson's around than we think. And he'd just been spotting people with Parkinson's all over Oxford. What a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) You sure they weren't students with a hangover? (laughs) What did you think in general, Gillian, about that? To be fair, I haven't read the book. So I, I probably should read. You have read the book. I, I've read the book, and it is it is quite impressive. In some, it's a sort of manifesto for action. But I, I am I'm more intent on research into yes the causes, but yes these repurposed drugs. Mm. There's a cough medicine drug, a diabetes drug, things like that that might actually bring things to a halt. And there there is some optimism, 
and he just seemed determined to pour cold water on it. Yeah, no, you're right about that. I mean, my hope is that it's a two-stage process, but one, some of those drugs you're talking about just arrest the decline so that we yeah. can stay at the same point we are at the moment. Yeah. And then maybe cell, stem cells could build it up again in the longer run. Because, yeah. you know, if, there, if we have a longer run, you know, if we stop losing the dopamine at the rate we're losing it, it at, there will be a longer run. So the that, fact, for me, is the, the, the fact that they can uh, do these stem cells and recreate stem cells, once they can implant them, then they can replace the things that are dead, possibly. I, I mean, don't they're know. very good at mice, not quite so sure they're good at humans yet. Paul, let's move on. And I'm let's going to turn into a mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to cheer us up with, with who you met, an extraordinary man. I met a most extraordinary man called Matt Eagles. And I mean, I'd known that Matt Eagles had had uh, Parkinson's for quite a long time. I didn't qu- realise quite how long he'd had it. I was actually diagnosed in 1975 on my, on my seventh birthday. Do you know, I really wanted a bicycle, but... Beggars can't be choosers and all that. I've had it nearly, nearly 50 years now. God, so how, how on earth were you diagnosed at the age of seven? What did they spot? I think it was more luck than judgment, really. I had the classic young onset symptoms. They originally thought it was a brain tumour or I had juvenile arthritis. I couldn't stand up straight. My headmaster, actually, at my primary school first noticed it. I just kept on falling on the floor in assembly and they thought I was being naughty. But no, it was just my knees giving way. I couldn't stand up straight. So I was referred to a GP. They spent a lot of time trying to prove that it wasn't Parkinson's, but I was paid to have cinema by a doctor. 50 pence in 1977. I was, as an eight, nine-year-old, it was tremendous. I bought so many sweets, it was untrue. You were on drugs from the age of seven, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's incredible. How could they know it was Parkinson's at that age? That must have been unique, surely, in their world. I don't think they specifically... Well, I don't think they specifically thought it was. And yet, when I've seen my digital health records, that's what it says, 7th of November, 1975, Parkinson's disease. So I think the fact that the cinema worked for me was a bonus... But I think that because it was, even back then, L-Dopa was relatively new anyway. But it worked for me. And it was astonishing. And ironically, I was doing things back then, like I had speech and drama lessons, I was playing table tennis, I was staying active. All the things that now are coming into the fore that... They're really good for people for part with but Parkinson's. You knew sort of instinctively that they were good for you before. I was just doing things I enjoyed. Did people make? Did other students make fun of you? Or yes, I, but it was actually the teachers that were the real issue. Oh God, no. I remember one particular. I went to a grammar school. We had to go from one classroom to another, and one particular lesson, I was a bit slow walking, and two of the boys hooked under my armpits and dragged me into the class. The maths teacher, who was very old school, decided it'd be much better for me to lie under the chalkboard on my back for the whole lesson, rather than get me into a desk and a seat. And I was trying to say to her, listen, all I need to do is get into the seat. No, no, you're lying on the floor. So yeah, that was tough. And in fact, my Latin teacher used to call me dead legs. Bloody hell. God. So now, they, I mean, you're a sort of iconic figure, really, for 
with Parkinson's. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't well, quite I, say well, that. Well, I went to this session yesterday, and you were sort of an iconic figure there, and you were an inspiration to people, and young onset people. I mean, it's just incredible, because the, the way you keep so cheerful and positive is an example to us all. Thank you very much. It hasn't all been plain sailing, though, <laughs> I have to agree. I mean, I have had some really, really dark times. I mean, I went through periods when I thought I was going to lose my voice, and that caused me to black my own eye several times, just out of pure frustration. The fact that not only could I not walk, but I was going to lose my main sense of communication, which was my voice. Yes. But um, I actually had spoke to a friend, uh, it was a friend of my family's actually. He taught me through it, and he taught me different ways of coping with possible upset, and I can't guess I was disappointed with the outcome of what was happening. But years and years and years ago, I took a vow of positivity, and I realised two things. One, my symptoms weren't as bad now I'm positive, and two, people actually like you and come and talk to you. And that, to me, is brilliant. That is all I need. And you've got to meet girls as well. <laughs> Do you know, it's only later in life, because I, I got married nine years ago, but being positive about something that's maybe not in general terms perceived to be a positive thing is quite an attractive kind of way of being I guess being positive when things are not necessarily positive eternal optimism I guess you call it to pinch your phrase Paul he is just he is just amazing I think he is he is absolutely inspirational and such such fun he he gave me a a t-shirt which he's told me to wear all day which I am slightly embarrassed which says I'm not pissed, I've got parkies. I, I wore it two days ago all day as well, yeah. I thought, I thought it smelled a bit funny. Um, <laughs> so, Gillian, that's a great message on which to sort of almost bring things to a close, yeah. that huge positivity. What, what, what has been your highlight this week? I think for me the highlight was, it was a thing on creativity I went to. It was a panel and there were four women speaking about painting, about writing, etc. And I wrote down in my phone actually, I looked at it afterwards and it said at 7.51 on Wednesday, July the 5th, I came to terms with having Parkinson's. I don't quite know what happened, but there was sort of a little epiphany. And I thought, this isn't as bad as I thought all along. And when doctors have said, you've got to come to terms with it, I think finally I have. Well, that's amazing. What about you, Paul? I think the most amazing thing was the uh, the opening ceremony, really, when everybody sort of came together. And then when we, we left the, the, this huge arena and all the assistants and volunteers applauded us. They and applauded, applauded us. And I, was, applauded I, was, I was very moved by that, actually. I was deeply moved by it, yes. The whole week seems to be a celebration of what people can do rather than what they can't do. And that seems to me absolutely right. Wonderful. Well, for me, the, I, I thought the highlight was going to be learning all sorts of new stuff from learning professors, and that's been interesting. But what's been amazing is going around and just meeting so many brilliant parkies, people with incredible experiences. I've just sat here with a, a young man with a, a very rare form of Parkinson, Parkinsonism called Fars disease, rather terrifying when your brain calcifies. And he was so upbeat, he started his own charity, I then introduced him to a head of medical research. They made contact, you know, something might happen out of that. And I just felt this is such a, a brilliant sort of meeting of minds and a community coming together. So I've really loved it. 
and I think, Gillian, you may have another of your poems to bring us out on. I may indeed, yeah, well done. We came to Barcelona for a laugh and for a moan about PD. It all turned out quite successfully. There were parkies and physicians, there were carers and clinicians. A parky kind of meeting of the clans. And so many came and found us, and with smiles all around us, it seems that we have tripped across our fans. I mean, that's what happened. Everyone suddenly was, movers and shakers, you're one of them, aren't you? And there they were. We've got a lot of fans, haven't we, Paul? We, we have got a lot of fans. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I'm just sorry that Jeremy couldn't join us to experience this fandom, because I'm sure he would have valued enormously. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this special edition of Movers and Shakers from World Parkinson's Congress in Barcelona. We'll be back in September at full strength, yes, including Jeremy, for another series. Join us then. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Podo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lucat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at MoversAnd6, that's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. Mm-hmm.